Constance? You're the best looking woman I ever saw. And I ain't never tried to do nothing but put a smile on your face. That ain't no good saying I'm sorry. If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. This is episode number 172, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Certainly not something that I would have thought we'd be doing back when we started this show. Oh my, no. (laughs) Boy, am I happy we are doing it. Oh, Uh, wow. I I really like this movie. It's a great movie. I'm sure no one has seen it. None of our listeners probably really know it, but hey. It's a Criterion Club That's right. entry, and yes. sometimes you do one for yourself versus our listeners. Yeah. This is one for us. I would heavily encourage people to see this one, though. Of the Criterion stuff, this is like a pretty quick watch. It keeps moving. It's not as dry as maybe some other Criterion movies might be from the older eras. I don't know. I think there's a lot to like here. So if I you're mean, not I do enjoy it as well. Them. I'm not sure I can go with you on thinking that everyone else is going to like it. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I do think this is a movie that you have to kind of be in the right frame of mind for. Okay. Because it's a little strange well, and off-putting at the beginning. I guess maybe that's why it jumps out and is for me because this screams me right at the beginning because shots of the Pacific Northwest, Leonard Cohen songs are playing. It's raining. This is everything <laughs> that I like. So, McCabe and Mrs. Miller from 1971, directed by Robert Altman, screenplay by Altman, and a guy named Brian McKay, based on a 1959 novel called McCabe by Edmund Naughton. Yeah. Before we jump into this gem from the 1970s, yeah. this uh, kind As of... As some of us are calling it. Semi-obscure... Okay. ...revisionist Western, I think... Yeah. Which I only know of two that fall into that category well there's a lot but I'm they're sure, not yeah they're not really all like this i mean the, the idea of the revisionist western or the anti-western as altman would call it is just kind of a concept that takes what is usually associated with the western which of course 
was a huge like genre of movies in the 50s and 60s. Cowboys and like desert towns. And it kind of changes it and turns it on its head and, and kind of goes against those conventions. But before we jump into yeah. it, follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, everything else. Please. We're back in action here, pumping yep. out eps, having Years a good time. Along. This podcast is literally the only thing we're living for at this point. Really? When we first put this on the schedule, because I think I decided that I wanted to do this on this show like last winter. Yeah. But we had, we're already at the tail end of the winter by the time I thought about it. Right. And I was like, all right, well, we'll throw it on the schedule for next winter. Now, we're recording this on a 70-degree day, I was and it's been in January. unseasonably yeah. right. warm all winter so yeah. far. Although, now, I know uh, that it's coming, but... Kind of a gloomy day today, so... You know. Yeah, but I was thinking, like, oh, this right. will be fun to do when there's, like, snow, and it's just yeah. the dead of winter, and it just hasn't really felt like it. But, you know... You're right. Well, maybe when... Hey, maybe when this episode drops, though. Yeah, by the time we put this one out, maybe everything will be different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Altman had kind of a rocky relationship out the gate with... The studios, he was fired from the first movie he worked on. I, you know, I could bring up the name, but I don't remember it, and I don't okay. care. Yeah, there we go. Move on. But everything changed with the success of MASH. Ah, yes. Which, if you think about it, is kind of the war movie version of something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is like it takes the war movie conventions and kind of throws them out and does it completely differently. Yeah. And focuses on the non-movie elements, the non-heroic war movie elements that you would associate with war movies, which is kind of what these revisionist westerns or anti-westerns would do. But MASH made like 10 times its budget back at the box office. It got nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Okay, that's a success then. So he was in a position now to actually kind of take on his own projects. I think in between he did a movie called Brewster McCloud, which was kind of a strange movie. But this one is... Right on the heels still of yeah. the MASH success. His overall filmography is kind of weird. It's hard to sometimes see the connective tissue between his movies. A lot of different looks and feels, I feel like. Yeah, this movie in particular would kind of be the f- his first dabbling with the idea of like the overlapping dialogue and yeah. the strange choices he would make with <laughs> the audio and the different tracks and which would oh, be right. louder and which yes. wouldn't and stuff. and. I think it definitely like threw people off because this was like their first exposure to it. It's something that he kind of perfected more later with like Nashville and stuff. But the thing that jumps out to me the most about McCabe and Mrs. Miller is the look of it. They went for this grit and grime and really focus on nature. Oh yeah. I think Altman did this thing, I think it's called like flashing the film or whatever, so that the film was like already the way they wanted it it wasn't something they did in post so that the studio had no choice but to like let them have it the way it looks (laughs) because if it was something that they were waiting for i think he was afraid that they wouldn't be allowed to do it the way they wanted so he would like fuck with the film before they even used it and it gives it like this very like a dark tint to it yeah there's like this dreamy fuzziness like yeah well it's like like the cameras around the edges at times oh it's kind of like the cameras being rained on or later snowed on like you can kind of feel the elements and to like, it. Yeah, and there's like a lot of very cool-looking, memorable shots in yeah, the movie. Absolutely. One of the best ones is like right during the opening credits, where McCabe is about to cross that bridge, right? And the bridge is like all the way on the right side of the screen, and then you have like a kind of 
view of like the other side on the left side of the screen and then he like lights the cigar as he's about yeah. to cross the bridge and I think Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, reached out to Altman about that oh, wow. shot. Yeah, <laughs> I was like really impressed with it. There's it a lot awesome. of cool looking visuals throughout the movie. Yeah, I-, I love the whole opening sequence. I think it's like really cool how McCabe has this sort of noteworthy jacket, something like flashy, like you wouldn't see out of. And I know it's part of the whole revisionist Western thing, but it just like it jumps out to you because it's kind of like this flashy giant like fur coat. Yeah. It's definitely a, a memorable look. Altman wanted to achieve an antique historical look that reminded him of like old-timey photographs from around this era. I think this is supposed to be like around 1902. But it was pointed out like, oh, well, those photos are always in black and white. And he was like, well, yeah, but people didn't see in black and white. Back yeah, yeah. Then. And they're like, well, yeah, but they also didn't see in like unfocused blurry way <laughs> yeah. either so there's kind of this contradiction okay but it ultimately achieved this murky feel to it that feels like connected to the nature of the area it feels very like natural looking there's a lot of emphasis on sunsets magic hour oh yeah for sure snow rain uh, yes i think overall <laughs> the setting of the movie certainly the cinematography and the Leonard Cohen music all culminate together for just this like amazing vibe. It was shot almost in sequential order because in order to portray a town that was growing in size and becoming a place, like they start with an unfinished set that was basically one building, which is where the town gets its name, Presbyterian Church. Which, anything odd to you about that? It seems strange to me that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the town name is Presbyterian Church. I think it's supposed to be ironic because the church is never finished and never operational throughout yeah, the right. entire time. And there's even though nothing, they build everything up around it. There's nothing particularly holy about what's going on in town. No, but they took a bunch of costumed carpenters and made them extras, and they basically were building the sets in the background oh, yeah. of the movie. And there were a lot of people that were kind of ducking out on the Vietnam War living in Canada. This was shot in Vancouver. And so they were just given costumes and said, hey, pick what your character does oh, right. and just be that person for the next couple of months in the background while this is happening. And yeah, that's where a lot of the extras came from. It is cool like how you the story goes on and the town is just sort of being continually built up in the background. At the center of the story is John McCabe, who plays this bumbling, mumbling possible con man yeah he's a gambler a wanderer he's likable of course but some people seem to see through his bullshit almost immediately there's definitely and that's okay uh, yeah there's definitely a facade that he's yeah it's like some creating. people fall for it because the people of the town seem very uh simple and lethargic that's almost. true yeah but there are people that are kind of just like yeah this guy's full of shit but they don't mind but there's definitely not a lot of the classic cowboy characters that exist in this town we meet some later on in the movie. No, yeah. Part of the idea of a revisionist Western is to throw out a lot of the tropes that weren't necessarily that realistic, like the idea of cowboy hats and southern accents and right. a lot of stuff. This feels more what you would think frontier life would feel like. Sure, yeah. I can't watch this movie without thinking of the smells. My God, I know smells. how horrible that would be. <laughs> and it's weird because it's like... terrible stuff. You know... <laughs> prostitution was like at an all-time high of a successful (laughs) industry but it's like man i I don't know it just seems like you're making a lot of sketchy choices by walking into one of those places well 
I mean, yeah, I guess in this at this time period, the STDs didn't seem as bad. They were just like a part of life. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't like AIDS, I oh, guess. Oh, boy. Yeah. It was just, I think you were baptized into a life of shit from That's the true. very beginning. Yeah. So you were used to the smells and you were used to making do with how terrible things were yeah <laughs> i think it's impossible for people living in this time period to look at that and think yeah i could oh right live in this I yeah could, I, it's like yeah i would just if it was between just nothing and some of these particular women that become the prostitutes especially early on it's like yeah i, mean, I would just go with nothing yeah but just it's just a different mentality some good looks at how savage these male characters can be uh and the, some of the women well too. yeah true <laughs> especially alma oh yeah the beginning yeah but at the center with mccabe we have warren Beatty, and this movie i think in some ways speaks to the power and the charisma of movie stars having warren Beatty as the star in 1971 goes a long way into getting the movie made and financed but it also hooks you into the story faster i think Oh, yeah. It's interesting to have guys like Warren Beatty, who are big stars, put into these performances. And now that's much more common. You have somebody like DiCaprio going all in on something like The Revenant to win an Oscar. (laughs) Right. And really actually living and dealing with the elements. But this was kind of the start of stuff like that. I mean, this wasn't like a fake cowboy production. Oh, yeah. This wasn't Bounty Law from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. This was like, they were out in Vancouver. The snow is real. The rain is real. Oh, yeah. For the most part, all of the elements are real. I mean, I think they did have to kind of fix a little bit of the continuity here and there with some of the stuff if if it stopped snowing when they were in the middle of filming stuff or whatever. But, I mean, essentially, most of what you see weather-wise is real, and they're out in it filming this. Yep. And it's not a glamorous movie or role for Warren Beatty but it takes somebody like that to hook you in and allow you to get past the weird audio and stuff the overlapping dialogue at the beginning of the movie where you're kind of like what is happening yeah this is really hard to even figure out what they're talking about for long stretches at the beginning (laughs) a huge benefit to have subtitles on oh yeah I would say because yeah there's like his first appearance in Sheehan's bar or whatever patties whatever the place is called yeah there's so much dialogue and interactions going on with the patrons of the bar that if you don't have the subtitles on i don't know how you can tell yeah, what they're you all can't really keep about. it straight it's different now because now we're what almost 50 years removed from this movie so we've seen everything that's come after it and different filmmakers take little inspiration from different people and things get passed down and so chances are you've seen things that approximate this at times. But in 1971, I mean, this was very different from how most people were. One person speaks, then the other person speaks, and you heard every yes, line clearly, right. even if it was a lot of people talking. Like, the audio was done in a way where the people you needed to hear were raised up above everybody else, which is uh-huh. not how Altman was doing it. He wanted it to be like this cacophony of sound of yep. people talking. And it took a while, I think, for audiences to get used to. We also have Julie Christie... Yeah, really. A, Constance Miller. Quite a babe during this time period, I would say. Yeah, she was a huge star from England. And she won an Academy Award for Best Actress for a movie called Darling. She was also in Dr. Zhivago, which adjusted for inflation is yeah. the eighth biggest movie of all time. Her and Warren Beatty were a real-life couple. 
right? They were in a ton of movies together. Yeah, yeah. Shampoo. Yeah, Heaven uh, Can Wait, yes. which was not until 78. Yeah, they right. did a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's great in this movie. She was nominated for an Academy Award. She did not win for this movie, but I especially like whenever her hair is like not pinned up and she's just kind of rocking that like almost like afro curly, of yeah, curly right. hair. Yes. <laughs> just so much hair. Yeah. Just an all-time pretty face for me though, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> for you, but no one else. Yeah. <laughs> no, just yeah, I mean she's definitely she has to be a, uh, a certain level of attractive to make sense for the character, especially when you factor in like how much she's yeah. charging for a date versus the other girls and all that stuff. Now, I watched this and Heaven's Gate for the first time kind of around the same, roughly the same time as each other. A lot of similarities there just with you kind of feel like the Chris Christopherson character is a little bit McCabe-esque and he's also carrying on this relationship with a prostitute yeah i don't know just that's also the other one that i know of to be a western revisionist i'm sure there's many others but those are the two that really fall into my wheelhouse yeah well i think part of it is that there weren't necessarily a lot of prominent women at this time in these areas because respectable Decent women from good families wouldn't go out and be a part of this world. Yeah, like building these new towns. So a lot of the characters that pop up and stuff like this that want to give a more realistic, raw feel to the Western rather than the glamorized Hollywood version, yeah, the women are going to kind of be <laughs> disreputable figures. like The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Isabel Huppert in oh, yeah. Heaven's Gate or Julie Christie in this yeah, I mean, some revisionist westerns would be like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, for okay. example. Yeah, I've seen that. A lot of Sam Peckinpah's movies, like The Wild Bunch or things like that. They continued on even into like later decades, like the 70s, 80s, 90s. I think uh, Jim Jarmesh made one called Dead Man. Oh, that's right, yes. Johnny Depp. I've never seen like that, that. Or the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. No, that's true. I guess I could see like why that, that would be on, yeah. I wanted to go over this thing. I'll show it to you real quick. People listening right now aren't going to be able to see it. It's the promotional nationwide oh. thing for Warner Brothers summer schedule wow. of 1971. The Omega Man. Holy shit. So the thing that's yeah. interesting about it, I'll, I'll describe Clute. it really quickly. So the summer of 71, the slate of films that the major studio Warner Brothers had was The Omega Man, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Clute, Dusty and Sweets McGee, which I've never even heard of, and The Devils, which is an odd movie directed by Ken Russell. That was their big summer slate of movies. None of those movies were a hit, by the way. None of them really made that much money. But it's hard to imagine... It was some such... famous movies in there, though. Well, yeah, oh, now Mega those Man's movies are like yeah. well respected, right. a lot of them. But it indicates where Hollywood was at this yeah. time period that a movie like McCabe and Mrs. Miller was like released and expected to do well because the studios really didn't know what to do at a certain point, and they were being much more influenced by the auteurs and the artists as directors. And things were definitely in change, and that's why the '70s are considered the best time for American filmmaking. Yeah, and this absolutely. is the, this is like the still probably the dawn of the new American cinema that would lead into even more famous people like Scorsese and De Palma and Spielberg and all that stuff that would come later. But, you know, this is like the beginning of it. There's no way, (laughs) there's just no way that that would be 
a slate of movies right. even 10 years later, let alone now. No Marvel movie on that market. Well, Warner Brothers has DC, yeah, but whatever. yeah, I mean, yeah. there's no monster special effects, big budget yeah. things. Those are all very contained, smaller type movies. Interestingly enough, Clute, starring Donald Sutherland, coming out that same year, later he would go on to star in another Criterion movie with Julie Christie, yeah, Don't, Don't Look, Look now. now, kind of infamous for its the sex, sex scene. scenes. <laughs> That yeah. Warren Beatty, uh, <laughs> I think, was taking some issue with due to the how <laughs> a lot of uh, drama, how realistic the, there used to they be a were. lot yeah. of drama of all the time. Absolutely. Whether it was the chick from The Wicker Man and <laughs> right. Rod Stewart flipping out about that, or whatever, you know, people used to just get really mad. Oh yeah, about it was a lot wilder. You you believed that people were having sex in these movies, and I think they were sometimes, yeah. probably. <laughs> It's kind of an ensemble cast with a lot of people that you really don't know, other than Shelley Duvall in a small part. Almost Keith Carradine. Uh, jarring that Shelley Duvall is in this one. She she definitely she was in a couple out. Altman yeah. movies. I think she was in Nashville as well. Uh, she was yeah. in Three Women. Yeah, she did. She did a few Altman movies. Uh, you mentioned the Leonard Cohen score. It's really only yeah. three songs. I know. Played over and over. But it was a complicated thing though because Cohen was with Columbia Records, and then he really liked Brewster McLeod for some reason, and he agreed to do this and he like had Columbia rewrite his contract so that not only would he be able to give these songs over to the production wow. for cheap but that Altman would get a percentage of like the record sales oh, for wow. some of these songs and stuff which is really unheard yeah. of yeah and um, at first when he was like screening the movie he was like yeah I don't like it but then <laughs> He called Altman like a year later and said he watched it again and loved it. So yeah. he had like a change of heart so about it. When you hear these Leonard Cohen songs, it almost feels like every Leonard Cohen song is just part of like one long song. Oh, yeah. You know, that's kind of how it is. But I do love it. I, I think I talked about it on the graduate episode, how I think I love when like one artist is featured as the prominent sound for the movie. I just think, I mean, I think sometimes it's unmemorable and doesn't really have a big impact, but I think sometimes it really works. And this is one of those cases. I remember like Tom Petty and the heartbreakers did like, or maybe it was just Tom Petty, but didn't they do like a, the movie, like she's the one or something. Uh, it could be. Remember yeah. That movie from uh, like the nineties. Not coming to mind really. She's the one. <laughs> All right. I'll fact check that. And if I'm wrong, okay, I'll please. Take it out. Yeah. <laughs> 1902 Washington state. The raw, untapped Pacific Northwest. I love it. We're in this little frontier town called Presbyterian Church. At the beginning, it only has that church, which will never really be finished or operational. But there is a really cool shot of that sunset where the guy is. Like, yeah, that part's awesome. Climbing the church to like put the cross up there. That looks yeah. really cool. McCabe enters the town and is instantly like this cult of personality. He's this mysterious wanderer. Our drifter. Yeah. He's a gambler, a drifter. But he's like almost his legend a force precedes of nature. him, kind of. There's a lot of questions about his past and this reputation and his history, but it really only seems like the one guy is really pushing this narrative. Well, yeah, McCabe easily dominates over the simple-minded miners of this town who don't really have much going on and don't really have any ambitions. But McCabe is like fueled by this ambition to be something bigger. He sets up a poker game right away and this is where the rumors about his past first come from Sheehan the guy that runs this own this yeah. saloon in town he believes that McCabe is this semi-famous gunfighter who once shot a guy of some renown named 
Bill Roundtree that yeah, no one else has right. ever heard of either. <laughs> I, I th- feel like I kind of heard of Bill Roundtree as like the <laughs> best you'll get. He thinks that he is this guy named Pudgy McCabe. There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret all of this. I'm not really yeah. sure what you're supposed to take if M- Pudgy McCabe is a real person who is not John McCabe. Or if John McCabe actually is Pudgy McCabe, but he's not really a gunfighter. Right. Or if the story is kind of true, but the version that McCabe admits to later is what really happened. Yeah, yeah. And yet somehow he got tied in with it and he kind of just lets that run as a rep. I don't know. I'm not really sure what... Needless to say, the idea that he was a gunfighter named Pudgy McCabe that killed a guy named Bill Roundtree, that probably is not true. I think the big point we're taking out of this is that... He's okay with having the rep of being a badass, but we can all kind of see through that. Yeah, and in all fairness to him, he doesn't bring it up. Right, exactly, does, he, yeah. I mean, he never denies it, but he kind of just lets this other guy run his mouth and then just kind of doesn't shoot him down. Yeah. McCabe settles into the town quick. He sees a blank canvas of potential and opportunity. One of the first things he does is establish a makeshift brothel consisting of three prostitutes that yeah. he purchases for $200 from a pimp in the nearby town of Bear Paw. Yeah, this feels like a, a questionable business model, just setting up these tents, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is like very fly-by-night. Low security. But he sees an opportunity here. The town is based around some zinc mines in the area, and there's a lot of men. And oh, these yeah. These men are making a little bit of money being miners, and they got nothing to spend it on. That's and true. And they got no women, and they got only one saloon. All right. But he's seeing, like, okay, they're going to want to gamble, they're going to want to fuck. I can do something with this. And, yeah, these dudes are clearly desperate for women because when he rides them back into town, and, I mean, you know, I don't want to be too crude here, but we're not talking, like, Margot Robbie on the source. Julie Christie. Yeah. No. But they're all excited anyway. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we've got to talk to them. (laughs) So he sets up these tents, and they're working out of these tents for a while, but Early on, there's an incident with one of the girls named Alma where she just right. is, like, stabbing this dude. Yeah, pretty wild. And nothing happens to her because <laughs> she's just in the movie later. I mean, you know, it's hard to yeah. tell them apart, but I know well, listen, that... listen, the town needs Alma much more than they need that dude. Plus, I mean, let's be honest, he probably did something. We oh, absolutely, yeah. But that also fits into the revisionist he was trying to cuddle with her. thing because... It's a major moment of activity that the lead character is not even a part of. He just looks out the window as it's happening. And <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you never get the story right. of what even happened. It's just this random event that happens, and you're like, oh, my God, there's blood like squirting out <laughs> just of Just like dude. violently stabbing him. Yeah, and then he kind of like pulls him apart, and he takes the knife away from her, and then it's over. Everyone's just like, well, no... another day in Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the the men took a vote. They're like, just kill that guy. <laughs> Get rid of him. <laughs> That's what I mean. We, yeah. we can't go down to two. Right. Alma was the best one. <laughs> After witnessing that, I'd be like, well, she's obviously the craziest, which means she's probably the best. Most expensive. <laughs> Seemingly out of nowhere and for no particular reason, a woman named Constance Miller, a British cockney. Yeah, the lack of backstory on this is sort of jarring a little bit you would the best i could piece together was she was in bear paw which is like a little bit more of an actual town yeah and she heard probably what was going on and she was like there's an opportunity here." yeah and she's similar to mccabe in that she is looking for an opportunity they both got that cunning moment yeah she arrives in presbytery church along with ida played by shelly duvall who is a mail order bride for some guy which i was like 
stunned that this was even a 1900, 1901. What year is this? I think you could probably still get mail order brides. Well, I know. <laughs> I, I can see it as a thing now. I, I just didn't even know how that business even operated in the nineteen early 1900s. Well, through catalogs, magazines. Catalogs. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever got to see what they looked like, but it was set up out of, it was basically like legalized slavery, like legalized yeah. selling, because it was probably like her parents were poor and wanted money for her right. kind of a thing. But I just Something feel like, like if you're okay, yeah, it just seems crazy. That so they, people with like little to no opportunities, kind of just getting injected into somebody else's life and their story, and yeah. they're just like a part of it. If it was 1900 and I'm sending money out for a mail order bride, I'm thinking the modern day equivalent of that is buying something off Craigslist from somebody in Africa. You know, like it's never <laughs> going to come. The Nigerian prince. Scam. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't really know the ins and outs of the mail order bride <laughs> industry of 1902 shockingly but. although i feel like you're probably familiar with the current policies <laughs> for all his confidence mccabe is inexperienced and in over his head and constance recognizes this immediately and sees her own opportunity in this frontier town she can run the brothel for mccabe build it bigger make it more profitable and make it more quality handle the day-to-day yeah shit that he doesn't really know anything about because well, i think it's interesting like <laughs> the first time you watch this movie, you're yeah. like, okay, he brings these three girls to town. He doesn't even have anywhere for them to stay. The tents aren't even up yet. And he takes them all up to his property that he's built, which he's trying to turn into like this gambling saloon place. Oh, yeah. And then the one girl is like, I have to go to the pot. Right. And yeah. it, it's so funny because it's like almost like a musical cue. And it just zooms in on McCabe's face. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, is this supposed to be funny? Like, I don't really understand why it's doing this. And the reality is because he just doesn't know what to do. Right. He doesn't have anything planned. I love that camera shot. It reminds me of, like, what Wes Anderson does in his movies. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> this I, uh, There's going to probably be a lot of things now that are going to come up. And it's almost fortuitous that somebody like Constance shows up and for all intents and purposes, seems pretty useful. Absolutely. And Beyond just handling the day-to-day, she has all these ideas about making it more attractive. Yeah, she like, understands, like, hey, we should build a bathhouse, make them take a bath for 25 right. cents. And if the girls are cleaner and there's more hygiene and there's all this, you know, and the beds are comfortable, it's like people will spend more. We can charge higher wages, yeah. People will want this, trust me. Don't try to cheap out on this. When you have an opportunity to really take it to the right. next level. Listen, Mr. McCabe, I'm a whore and I know an awful lot about whorehouses. And I know that if you had a house up here, you'd stand and make yourself a lot of money. Now, this is all you've got to do. Put up the money for the house. I'll do all the rest. I'll look after the girls, the business, the expenses, the, the running, the furnishing, everything. And I'll pay you back any money you put in the house so you won't lose nothing. And we'll make it 50-50. Uh. Excuse me, you know I already got a whorehouse operating. Ah, you can't call them crib cows, whores. I'm talking about a proper sporting house with class girls and clean linen and a proper hygiene. Well, I, I don't think you're going to find my clientele up here uh, too interested in that sort of thing. They will be once they get a taste of it. I'm telling you, with some up here to handle all them punters properly, you can make yourself at least double the money you make on your own. Uh, what makes you think I ain't thought of that already? Uh, them tents, you know, it's just uh, temporary. What do you do when one girl fancies another? 
Well, How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies? Because they don't. What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? You're going to do that? Would you? Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. What about when, when business is slow? You're just going to let the girls sit around on their bums? Because I'll tell you something, Mr. McKay. When a good all gets time to sit around and think, four out of five times you turn to religion, because that's what they was born with. And when that happens, you find yourself filling the bloody church down there instead of your own pockets. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to sit around and talk to a man who's too dumb to see a good proposition when it's put to him. Do we make a deal or don't we? Now, he takes her to Sheehan's to eat, and she's just, like, wolfing down. I love food. it, yeah. I was like, how could you ever eat anything back then? I don't know, but she is so skinny, and she's just, like, devouring this plate of food. It looks like anything on her plate would just give me diarrhea for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah, well, what about what he's doing throughout this movie? Just cracking open eggs and, like, drinking yeah, them. I feel like the whiskey is going to kill anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of potential for questionable food yeah going on bacteria i mean do you really think sheehan's washing his hands to oh I, I i'm not thinking so yeah do you think if like anything that he's got in the back there goes bad he's throwing it out yeah i don't think so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the uh health board's not coming to enforce anything so constance has mckay build a bathhouse she's going to bring in some seattle whores which i guess are supposed to be higher class yeah i, I can see that she's from the envisioning city. a more higher class establishment her arrival and the expansion of their enterprises coincides with the growth of the town which as i mentioned is kind of ongoing throughout the movie and there's more and more buildings popping up oh it's yeah actually becoming like a place we find out pretty early on that mrs miller herself constance is also charging for sex and she is five dollars yeah that's right high end the other girls are a dollar fifty. Yeah, which you get. I mean, <laughs> she's the true queen. I was a big fan of Blanche. I like Blanche too. <laughs> she's got some attitude. She's like stealing the gin bottle and hiding it under a pillow. I love it. <laughs> I thought she was kind of cute, but she's still no Constance Miller. Well, right. Come on, <laughs> Constance and McCabe kind of form a a semi-romantic relationship going on that well he's definitely quickly kind of jealous when she has yeah when she's customer. taking other customers yeah. even though he's also paying right but like that's another thing that i guess you can kind of read into throughout the movie it's like well what is their relationship exactly because she does still charge him and she does well he treat him in like a certain way i would definitely say he is into her her feelings towards him are less clear. Yeah, although I, think I do a think that she there. is pretty genuine towards the end. Yeah. Where she's very afraid for him and she right. does care about him. It also kills him that she's way smarter than he is. Yeah. <laughs> he just cannot <laughs> deal with that either. <laughs> because she's like she's reading more books worldly. and stuff. Yeah. She can do math in her head and he can't seemingly do anything. Right. But she's also addicted to opium, which never really becomes that much of a plot point, but she does like hide it from him. Yeah. I'm not really even sure why it's they just, threw that in there other than I guess it, I don't I think it adds to like her awareness of her situation. I don't know. She's managed to like build herself to this place where she's more of a madam than a prostitute even though she is still a prostitute. Yeah. But like, you know, she's been able to make the best out of the situation. And the best is doing opium. Right. Well, I, I No, I think that's the thing. I think she's embarrassed about the drug addiction, but yeah. it's just something that she deals with. Although I'm not sure like what 
the stigma level of being a drug drug addict versus being a prostitute would really be. I don't know. She doesn't want McCabe to know. That's true. Although, I mean, even if it's not like that embarrassing, I mean, at the very least, it might be seen as a weakness. That's true. My first thought was, how the fuck would you have a constant supply? But then, of course, the mines are all owned by like the Chinese, and there's all these Chinese encampments. But I'm like, well, where are they getting it from? Is it just being like shipped in all the time? It's a good question. Because I don't think you can grow opium plants in the Pacific Northwest, but I mean, who knows? I don't know. Tweet the show. Let us know. <laughs> Bart, who bought Ida, Shelley Duvall, is killed in a fight over her honor, basically. Yeah, a pretty pathetic showing by Bart, really. <laughs> it's actually just like kind of a sad death. Ida, not exactly broken up about it. No, although she's a little bit like, well, now what the fuck do I do? Well, at first she's like kind of afraid but then you kind of almost see her like smile as they're like carting his corpse away yeah (laughs) we'll circle back we'll circle back i'm sure life with bart wasn't exactly a dream it was my duty yeah (laughs) (laughs) just always the same voice no matter what (laughs) yeah i mean it's a shame what's happened to her i mean yeah she really fell on rough times i think i wish the people that were like in her life were like opium better care of her no i I don't know i know nothing about her i don't know she may she's just she has some sort of problem oh no i don't think people are taking care of her that's not great well that's a shame yeah as the town becomes richer sears and hollander pair of agents from the harrison shaughnessy mining company in bearpaw arrive to buy out mccabe's business as well as the surrounding zinc mines shaughnessy is notorious for having people killed when they refuse to sell yeah McCabe does not want to sell at their initial price and, uh, of fifty five hundred. Uh, is he truly aware of the no circumstances around? <laughs> no, because I guess actually your big clue here is when he's talking to Constance later about the situation, he doesn't say Harrison Shaughness. He says like Harris and like he doesn't really know what it is. No, but she knows. He overplays his hand in the negotiations in spite of Constance's warnings that he is underestimating the violence that will ensue if they do not, do not take the money. And he has sort of multiple opportunities to rectify this. So this, again, throughout the movie, we see this over and over and over. Like, McCabe is in over his head, and he's naive, he's inexperienced, and he doesn't really know what he's doing. I think there's actually, like, a little bit of foreshadowing early in the movie when he has a conversation with Sheehan, and there's, like, a line of, like, you have to know when to make a deal. Yeah. It's something like that. Yeah. And then this is that moment. I've often thought about that moment with Sheen and where I was like, well, if he had made a deal with Sheen then, would that have changed things later? And I don't really think it would have. Because yeah, they I, were talking about keeping out competitors. Right. But yeah, I do think like the idea right, of the, making the deal, yeah. And I don't know, Sheen is almost portrayed as like a shady character with his future interactions with all these other people outside of McCabe, but I don't think anything he does actually has an impact on anything. Like, all this stuff was going to no, happen No, I mean, he way. sells out quickly to yeah. Harrison Shaughnessy, but, th- yeah, I mean, that the only thing with him is he just doesn't have the same ambition right. as McCabe. It's not that he's even smarter and recognizes the danger more. It's just, like, he got offered a lump sum and was yeah. like, fuck it, I'm out. Like, he wasn't really, he didn't have this drive to build some big thing, like McCabe was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And this inexperience has shown it itself throughout the movie i mean like i said the thing with the girls when he first brings them he doesn't know what he's doing right. he needs to basically pass this off onto mrs miller and now here's a situation where there's eminent danger because this kind of falls under the general wild west rules I mean, people just killed each other yeah there wasn't a lot 
of law going on. You see no sheriff in this town. Right, right. There's nobody enforcing anything. Really. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to, like, the show Deadwood. Yeah, I mean, it is similar. But it's funny, like, these two dudes. It is weird where they draw their lines. What is it, Sears and Hollander? Is that yeah. the name? So, like, I love that they're like, okay, we're on a mission here. We've got a figure in mind that we're willing to go as high as. But it's like where they draw their line of just like, okay, we're done here. Yeah, it is more the Hollander guy that yeah. was just like, fuck it, we're leaving. <laughs> He's not an, enjoying himself at all through this experience. So Because McCabe is like going up and talking to Constance, and she's like, I don't know, maybe you should just take it. I think this could be dangerous. And he's like, yeah. no, 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 we're negotiating. They're going to come back. And then they do come back, and they offer $750 more. He still says no. Yeah. And then he's like, hey, Blanche, other girl, come over here, show them a good time. He's like acting like he's this big gregarious guy right. who's gonna really take control of the situation. He leaves them with two of his prostitutes. And I don't gives really them a think cigar. they stick around. No, with they the two leave. girls. Yeah, they just leave. We do get a conversation with Sears and Hollander though, and Sears is kind of like really acting like, well, we're gonna make one more play at this, and Hollander's just like, fuck it, I'm done. There's no room yeah, to negotiate with this guy. Too much of an idiot. Yeah. And Sears just like, okay, we're done. So now Ida, without Bart, is cast adrift in an unfamiliar town. We don't really know anything about her or where she came from, but now she's here out in this little, not even anything. Yeah. It's like barely a settlement. She's basically trapped there. There's one major employer for females in this town. The pros are she doesn't have to deal with Bart, which clearly is a positive. She's not a yeah. fan of. I mean, the cons are, well. <laughs> there's really not there's much maybe a lot there might be a lot of bards now constance sees an opportunity here and ropes ida into the life which she seems to take to yeah. pretty easily after a little bit of a pep talk true not a whole lot of convincing needed when they're burying bart an unnamed cowboy yeah. shows up played by keith carradine and i guess um it should be noted that mccabe after the fact that sears and hollander have left town He's now getting a little squirrely about everything. Right. Constance is in his ear. They're going to just shoot you in the back. What? Yeah. You blew it, you, you idiot. You made a mistake. You're not understanding the danger here. And he didn't want to believe it at first, but then when he realizes that Sears and Hollander left town, now he's got an eye open for strangers showing up. So this cowboy shows up. Turns out he's just interested in the whorehouse. <laughs> yeah, he heard there's a lot of action there. <laughs> Yeah, there's really no point to his character other than just kind of showing you the callousness of this world yeah. in terms of how it plays out for Cowboy. Shortly after Cowboy's arrival, three men, Butler, Breed, and Kid, bounty hunters set by Harrison Shaughnessy, show up in town to kill McCabe. But his stubbornness and pride keep him from just running and fleeing the town. Yeah, He's still trying to fix this situation with words he hasn't really reached his dream he was on a path to fulfilling yes. a goal and now he sees if he just flees he's giving it all up and starting at square zero again yeah because constance is like look we can get out of here we can go to san francisco or wherever she says and we can start over we can get out of here now you don't owe anything to anybody who cares what these people think get out of here <laughs> But yeah, giving everything up is like a non-starter. It's right. just like, that's not even remotely a consideration. He still thinks he can somehow fix this. 
So he goes to where the three guys are, and he tries to deal directly with the bounty hunters. And I think this is like such a great scene. The interaction with this main guy, Butler or whatever, yeah. is just such a great menacing figure. And the conversation that they have, it's almost like having a conversation with Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men, where it's just like, this is a foregone conclusion. Any opportunities you had to make a deal are over, and the world that we're living in now is I'm going to kill you. Yeah, although he doesn't actually say that. He says he's there to hunt bear. Right, exactly. <laughs> but Which I, I was confused as to why they don't kill him right away. Like, what is know. the waiting going on here? I, I was thinking that it feels like maybe we're getting closer to Law having a stronger presence, and like maybe there's still some questions about openly killing someone in front of a bunch of witnesses. I, I don't know, because well, I can't figure it out the either. kid does it later. I know, but he does no it in this weird way where... He's like trying to That's make true. it look like the guy was reaching for his gun. Yeah, that is true. So there's no dice as far as a the deal. They don't make deals, these guys. They have one job and one job only. The deal makers have already left. How much did you ask them for? Uh, well, we never got around that because, uh, oh, uh, well, I, I might have mentioned something like twelve, ten thousand dollars $10,000, something like that, but it's just to get them bargaining, you know, and, uh, and to, uh, well, just so they talk sense. Yeah, but how much did you really want? Uh, well, uh, that depends. I mean, they're it, talking about all my holdings. Um, eight thousand? Eight thousand dollars. Uh, oh, seventy-five hundred. Probably more like, uh, more right. You went very far apart, were you? Oh, hell no, that's what I'm trying to tell you. You see, uh, and I don't know what to mean by all my holdings. I mean, uh, all my holdings. Does that mean, uh, my horses, my clothes, my underwear, I don't know what to uh, Well, the fact is, uh, shit, I'd be willing to make a deal for uh, 6250 if they if don't count my, my personal property in that. And, uh, I mean, that's uh, provided that they uh, they buy my inventory separate. How much is that? Well, 350 300 300 And then, so you got uh, your 300 uh, 6250 So that's a... Uh, 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 65.50, 65.50. Well, let's just make that an even 6,500 and you got yourself a deal. I don't make deals. Uh, well, what you doing up here if you don't make deals? I came up here to hunt bear. I hear it's very good around oh, here. Get up. You don't work for Harrison Shaughnessy? Sometimes. But only when they can't make a deal. Well, look, now, that's just what I'm trying to tell you. This year deal can be made. Not with me. I guess uh, what I got to do is uh, get in touch with this uh, fellow Sears. Uh, see you boys later. McCabe, will you have a cold pudgy? Long time ago, why? My best friend's best friend was Bill Roundtree. 
Did you kill him? I was in a poker game when he got shot, but uh, I didn't kill him. Are you calling his best friend a liar? Well, I ain't calling nobody a liar. Bill Roundtree got caught marking the Queens. He went for his gun, they got shot, that's all. I'm going to count ten. If you're not on that bridge by the time I'm finished, I'm going to get very cross with you. Who said he shot him? I told you, everybody. He shot him with a derringer. That man? That man never killed anybody. The rumors of McCabe's glorified gunfighter past come back to light here. And yeah, you're like, she and... I love how every time Butler says something about this pudgy McCabe story and Bill Roundtree and everything... McCabe just looks at Sheehan. Yeah. <laughs> just like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Really? Butler confronts McCabe directly. And this idea that McCabe was once known as Pudgy McCabe, a successful gunfighter, yeah. Butler says his best friend's best friend was Bill Roundtree. And it, it didn't occur to me until my second time watching this in preparation for the show where. I was like, is that kind of like a self-own a little bit? <laughs> like, he's like, oh, yeah. my best friend's best friend? You mean <laughs> your best friend, their best friend wasn't you? <laughs> I, I was know. like, that seems that's like true. kind of a yeah, self-beatdown. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Roundtree was the guy that Pudgy McCabe supposedly killed. And McCabe tells some version of the story that they were at a card table. He was and caught marking queens. Yeah, and somebody shot him, and he was basically just there. And then when he leaves, Butler's like, "That man never killed anybody." Yeah, right. Well, it's it is funny the way it plays out, and I think I, I just think this Butler dude is just so great in this scene because he does this confrontation with such intensity, and obviously uh, McCabe is like shaken by it and just sort of wanders off with his tail between his legs. But right after that, Butler sort of breaks his demeanor and is like. Who the hell is this Bill Roundtree guy? Yeah. And then he's just like, that man? That man never killed anyone. Yeah. And that probably is what we would believe about McCabe's yeah, past. Yeah. But he was willing to play upon that rep to get himself established right. in this town. We see then McCabe having a pep talk with himself about his feelings for Constance and their complicated relationship that I thought was actually pretty hilarious, where he's just like, <laughs> out of all the women I could ever be close to, what are the chances that it would be a whore? And then yeah. he's like, well, a whore is probably the only kind of woman I would ever know. <laughs> and I was like, relatable. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah. that's another aspect of his character that is kind of so different from like the traditional Western hero where he just talks to himself a lot. and he's Right, kind of he's like always mumbling. muttering under his breath, yeah. Yeah, 
Well, I love the last time before this when he goes to see her at night and he's bringing like her a bouquet of flowers and he's like he takes a bath before he goes to see her. Like, yeah. I mean, he really does it up for her, <laughs> even though he's still paying her. Well, he has to take a bath. That's a rule. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's a precursor to another character that would appear in an Altman film in a couple of years that would also be the anti-version of the regular, and that would be Philip Marlowe, his version in The Long Goodbye. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, who's constantly talking under his breath through that movie. Yeah, that portrayal by Elliot Gould is very different from the other portrayals of Marlowe, and this version of McCabe is very similar to that. Sure, it's yeah, it is. the same type of character. McCabe tries to find Sears and Hollander in Bearpaw, but they've left the area, so he goes to see a lawyer named Clement Samuels to try to obtain legal protection from Harrison Shaughnessy. Which is an interesting scene, because it kind of is giving you this false hope or optimism around his future and his options. Yeah, Clement Samuels is played by William Devaney, who, if you got rid of his ridiculous facial hair in the movie, you would probably recognize from various things. Uh, yeah. He's a kind of a character actor that's appeared in like a million TV shows and different stuff. Mostly like a comedic actor, really. This is kind of an odd movie for him to appear in. He's definitely eccentric in this scene. When a man goes into the wilderness and with his bare hands gives birth to a small enterprise, nourishes it, and tends it while it grows, well, I'm here to tell you that no dirty sons of bitches are going to take it away from him. Now, ain't that right? Well, I... I You're I, damn right it's right. <laughs> now, you take that there company, Harrison and Shaughnessy. They are stockholders. Now, uh, do you think they want their uh, stockholders and the public thinking that their management isn't imbued with all the principles of fair play and justice? The very values that make this country what it is today? Uh-huh. Busting up these trusts and monopolies is at the very root of the problem of creating a just society. Damn it, McCabe, I'm here to tell you that this free enterprise system of ours works. And working within it, we can protect the small businessman and the big businessman as well. Well, yeah, I, I just didn't, uh, didn't want to get killed. Until people stop dying for freedom, they ain't going to be free. I can see it now. On the front page of the Washington Post, right next to a picture of William Jennings Bryan, McCabe strikes a blow for the little guy. We're going to become a famous man, McCabe. <laughs> we could find ourselves having dinner with William Jennings Bryan. Well, I... You're going to be a hero. <laughs> Come on. You're going to stare them down and make them quake in their boots. Mm-hmm. Oh. We get to Marshall and, uh, huh? We don't need to Marshall. We're going to do this through the courts. Well, then, uh, I guess what you're saying is that, uh, we get this thing in the papers and in the courts and all that, that, uh, uh, well, they, they just can't afford to kill me. Uh, is that right? You're damn right, that's right. So I'm going to read a little thing from the Criterion booklet, the write-up by Nathaniel Rich about McCabe and Miss Miller about this scene. McCabe's 
haunting showdown improvised during an unexpected snowstorm is the film's masterstroke, but the most revealing insight into Altman's thinking comes just before this. McCabe visits the office of Clem Samuels, a small-town lawyer who doesn't seem to have ever left the safety of his dusty office. If his fatuous tone is not a clear enough indicator of his buffoonery, his clownish mustache and mutton chops leave no room for doubt. Of all the film's villains, he is the most loathsome. In a final desperate gambit, McCabe begs the lawyer to help protect him from the mining company and its hired goons. Samuels urges him not to worry. Damn it, McCabe, I'm here to tell you that this free enterprise system of ours works, he says, and working within it, we can protect the small businessman and the big businessman as well. I just didn't want to get killed, says McCabe. (laughs) For once, McCabe's instinct is right. Only he's already doomed. This system of ours does not work for everyone. The small man can fight and rage and dream, but in the long run, he doesn't stand much of a chance. McCabe can't understand this deeply American truth, but Robert Altman did. He lived it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the writer here is trying to tie in Altman's own experiences with working within the studio system, but I think it's interesting in the context of today's society. One of the best movies of the year, Parasite, focused on kind of the pitfalls of capitalism and right. the downside the of the American yeah. dream, even though the movie's set in Korea, it still applies to a way of life here in America just as much. And this movie, in its own weird, unique way, wraps into that, where this lawyer who's all huff and puff and right, no right. substance yeah. pretends as if there's a way to protect the small businessman yep. from this monopoly they they do call it a monopoly at one point they say would their shareholders really want to know the truth about how this company operates and And it's it's weird i mean how recently did we talk about you know dark waters on this podcast and just like (laughs) the ruthlessness of big business and what they'll do and And this is the precursor this is the american west version of that this is how it all started it's just this lawlessness and we will do whatever it takes if this person won't sell us their stakes at whatever we deem the price should be, then we'll just kill them and yeah, take it. right. The end, and nothing will happen. And that's kind of what McCabe has finally realized. I mean, it took him a while to get there. Yeah. But this lawyer is just blowing smoke up his ass with this pretend I guess the, version of justice that yeah, will never right. happen. I guess the weird result of this scene is McCabe is coming to face the truth, but it's like... He's in another town at this moment. He has a yeah, chance he, to he knock him over back. Bear Paw, yeah. yeah. But yeah, fleeing just never occurs to him as a real option. Back in Presbyterian Church, Cowboy gets into that confrontation with Kid on the bridge outside Sheehan's place. I guess this scene just serves the purpose of these guys are now ready to be in kill mode. Yeah, I think the character of Kid, you could probably read into that he's trying to prove himself to his superiors, Breed and Butler, the other two guys. That's right. He definitely looks very young he feels like he has something to prove yeah and it also illustrates the ruthlessness of this time period i mean right just kills a man in cold blood and nothing's really gonna be done about it and don't the other people at the restaurant like come outside and just watch it happen and then just yeah turn back they're kind of too afraid to do anything i I was thinking who's taking care of that corpse yeah pulling that corpse out of there i mean well it's about to freeze over just gonna be there forever under the ice stinking yeah. corpse who is this guy they don't know who this guy is he showed up into town he's just kind of a just probably traveling guy a lot of money at that whatever you call him yeah at the brothel yeah i, I, was gonna yeah, say I mean bordello. 
Yeah, they don't know who he is. They don't know his name. He died in an unfamiliar place, and uh, you know he's probably going to be in an arm- unmarked grave. That's it's right. Kind of a yeah. sad, pathetic yeah. existence, really. Life of a drifter. Though. At least he got to have some fun. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Run, got a shot at Blanche through the whole stable. Yeah. The next scene is between McCabe now back in town with Constance, where McCabe is trying to find the words to apologize, I guess, for being so stubborn and not realizing what was happening. And Constance that just kind of wants him head. to get under the yeah. covers. And it's kind of this sweet moment. Now, every time that she's sweet to McCabe, you do kind of think that she's high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because right after she smokes opium, that's when she's like nicest to him. Right. So she might be completely fucked up in this moment. Although she is crying, kind of. Well, yeah. So there is like some real emotion Well, there's there. some mood swings. I do think that there's actual affection. Though. I do too, yeah. But I definitely think that if you're talking about being in love, I think that's more coming from McCabe than Mrs. Miller. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how how far Hard along she is on okay. the scale. Yeah. I mean, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I just think that there is some genuine feeling there. Yeah. Well, obviously, the choices that she makes after this evening. Yeah. Well, she just goes and gets fucked up forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's like kind of like the end of From Hell. Remember that movie? Yeah, I do. Giant Depp. Is there like some opium dens going on in that? Yeah. It's odd to think that I think From Hell would be taking place before this. That's true. I was actually kind of surprised when I saw that this movie was set in 1902 because they never really say it in the movie. I no, don't no. Think, but I was picturing a little bit earlier than that. Hard for me to say what I <laughs> what I would feel when this was taking place so the final showdown is also atypical and it it subverts the western genre and it earns this movie the distinction of being an anti-western or revisionist western because it's this ungraceful clumsy thing in the snow the townspeople instead of hiding and being aware of the showdown are all out running trying to put out a fire which we'll get to in a minute the hero is kind of hiding from the villain and and looking to sneak attack and it takes place in the early morning hours rather than the high noon showdown right yeah which was very standard for these things and it just doesn't look or feel like how other normal look and feel right. in the big moment but this takes up the last 20 or so minutes of the film it's much of it co- without dialogue yeah and it's a pretty cool sprawling sequence where they go kind of all through the little town yeah, I think it looks awesome. I yeah. mean, it's so cool looking in the snow. You just don't really envision a final showdown of a Western being in the snow. Oh, absolutely. Because most yeah. Westerns seem to be taking place like in a desert almost. Yeah, or like, yeah, in like mountains, but not like mountains covered with trees like this, like mountains covered in like rocks. <laughs> <laughs> like the desert mountains. All right. <laughs> you kind of know what I mean. A lethal confrontation has become inevitable, but McCabe won't go down without a fight. He bucks the traditional Western. He's going to do like heroics. a Home Alone style. He's going <laughs> to set like up traps. Yeah. traps. <laughs> yeah, I do kind of get invested in it at the end, and you're kind of like, fuck yeah, McCabe. Like, yeah, stand fuck up. these dudes up. Oh, you want to know who really gets annoying here? A guy who's been around throughout the movie, hasn't played much of a part, but all of a sudden is going to stick his nose in this shit? The Reverend. That's true. Someone we haven't mentioned at all, but he really kind of... McCabe hides in the empty chapel for a bit, but then he's kicked out by the pastor, I guess for bringing guns and violence into the church. Although, as I've pointed out throughout the entire thing, the church is never operational, which I think is kind of funny and ironic, but 
it's been there the longest. It, it's what gave the town its name, yet it's never really been used yeah, for yeah. anything. The pastor takes the shotgun and is like, get out of here. But then Butler kicks his, the door down of the church and shoots the pastor in yep. a case of mistaken identity. And it's like a brutal shotgun shot oh, to the yeah. arm. Right. Like, Blasts his arm off. Yeah, I mean, he may not die that day. It, yeah, but, but it's going to be a I slow, mean, painful death. In the old west, death, he's yeah. going to be dead. Unless they hurry up and cut that off and sew it Cauterize or it. Ugh. <laughs> Hope it was worth kicking McCabe out. Really? And it sort of becomes this cat and mouse game now between the three would-be assassins and McCabe. A fire starts in the church from the broken lantern, which causes the townspeople to run out to try to extinguish the fire. That's what gets weird about this whole sequence is at the beginning it feels like McCabe and these three dudes are the only ones left around, but then the rest of the town does come out. Yeah, while but they're like, uh, like unaware is... that this is all happening, right, yeah. seemingly. Because you would think that maybe some of the townspeople would help, but people were kind of cowardly, I guess. They don't want to get involved. Do you think there's any chance that these people would put this fire out the way that they're I, doing no, it? No, I don't. I'm shocked by the end of the movie when this fire has been successfully extinguished. I'm like, how the fuck did they do that? <laughs> yeah. They're like literally throwing buckets, and it seems like the people at the front of the line who are actually tossing the water are doing a terrible job. I know. They're throwing it at like nothing. It's not a well-oiled <laughs> machine. McCabe manages to kill Kid in the bathhouse, but is wounded in the process. I think he actually is shot twice. In this scene? Maybe, yeah. yeah. I think he's shot in the stomach and then in the leg. Well, that sucks. Or something. Yeah. It's kind of hard to tell, but it seems like he's like bleeding from He's pretty fucked places. up after this. But he kills Kid, and then he continues his evasion as the church is in flames. McCabe then shoots Breed through the window of a building breed was walking in front of without taking any more damage so he's killed two of them and now it's down to butler the main guy and mccabe in a final 1v1 situation yeah. but uh mccabe heads for the hills kind of i mean i don't yeah. really know what his plan is here but he's kind of just running around the different places the way that it's set up is kind of cool because you don't really see butler until Right, right before the last moment and so then you're kind of second guessing what you were just watching yeah like did mccabe know that he was in that area kind of and he was trying to get away or i don't know i don't you're really, really know. sure what mccabe is doing it, in this moment that's the thing <laughs> and whatever it doesn't really feel like mccabe's plan was like great <laughs> because what happens here? well he's been shot twice yeah. there's so much snow <laughs> he doesn't really know what to do while attempting to climb a hill in the now very deep snow, McCabe is shot in the back and mortally wounded. However, he manages to play dead and then kills Butler with a headshot when Butler moves close to confirm right. McCabe's identity. So, I mean, whatever his plan was, he still got shot in the back, even though he won this little showdown. Well, he won in the sense Briefly. that he lives for like a few more seconds. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> McCabe ends up dying alone in the snow as the townspeople <laughs> celebrate. start crying? <laughs> As the townspeople celebrate putting the fire out, meanwhile, Constance is sedated in an opium den yeah. down in the Chinese encampments at the zinc mines. She knew she left him for dead. What was she going to do? I don't know. <laughs> so you're I feel taking like she, it that she just abandons him. I, I kind of feel that way, I yeah. thought she was just doing that to like deal with it. You thought she was going to get high? Like That was like her normal... Well, no, just to, oh, to deal with... Like the whole situation. The scene. 
Yeah, could be. I mean, it's 3v1. I mean, I don't know that she she probably didn't even think that he was going to do that well. True. You almost want yeah. there to be an acknowledgement on screen right? <laughs> from somebody true. to be yeah. like, well, he did pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definite vibes from The Shining here of Oh yeah. He freezes. Warren Beatty yeah. freezing sitting in the snow, just getting covered in snow. And then it just kind of goes to the credits after Constance is just staring at something. I don't even know what that thing is she's looking at. Yeah. I think it's like a pipe or something. And then it's like it's an extreme close-up of it. And then the credits are rolling. Yeah, kind of a bleak ending. Yeah, kind of how what you would imagine that kind of Western town in that time period to be. Right. Like that actual shitty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like that terrible. Just when you're like, man, you could have sex with Julie Christie for $5 this would be great. I'd love to live back. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like everyone's getting shot in the face <laughs> and the pastor gets his arm blown off right. with a shotgun. You're like, oh shit. Okay, maybe it's not so great. Fire that DeLorean back up and get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, the movie moves along. There's not that many <laughs> There's not that many plot points to it really, you know, but I, I do just feel like the aesthetic of it, the music, the pacing, everything about it is just so cool. I, I just think it's an awesome movie to watch. Yeah, it's definitely like a vibes movie. You just kind of settle into the mood of it and the feel of it and the look of it. You just sort of exist in the world of it for two hours. Yeah, it's very unlike most Westerns. Even other revisionist Westerns don't necessarily capture the same tone yeah. and mood of this. Which, yeah, the Leonard Cohen songs definitely go along the oh, way with. Oh, sure. But it all works together in some crazy way now this movie didn't really make a ton of money it was not really a hit although the reviews are good and it's gone on to garner a pretty big rep much like pudgy mccabe yeah (laughs) and it's now considered like one of the best westerns and one of the best movies of the new american cinema era and all this stuff and has become a classic yeah which is why we're doing it on the show and why it's part of the criterion collection and all that stuff all right so let's move on to recommendations what are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. You want me to go first? If you want to, yeah. Okay, yeah. I watched a documentary on Netflix recently called Minimalism. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> now, hold on. Mostly, I do have some bad things to say about it. The two dudes that are kind of behind it are super obnoxious, and it's annoyingly positive. What is the name of this? Minimalism. That's the name of the doc? Yeah, because these two guys kind of preach this idea of living with less, and like it'll make you happier. Living with tiny versions of things. Yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) It's like downsizing the movie. That's what It's like the real version of downsizing. But overall... The documentary looks at a lot of stuff about American consumerism Mm -hmm. and just like how kind of crazy and disgusting it really is. I found it to be like pretty compelling. I I was very into it. Obviously, I'm super guilty of consumerism. As I look around and just piles (laughs) of Blu-rays in here. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I don't know. When you take a step back and you look at this stuff, like they talk about clothes and how how little value clothes have now because of how frequently people like are buying new clothes. Yeah. That it's it's just like a crazy thing. So I don't know. There was a lot of interesting stuff in there. I thought it was pretty good and uh would recommend. Okay, I have 3. 
<laughs> okay. Not they're being a all, minimalist. Uh, they're all basically available on DVD or Blu-ray or for rental on some streaming services. They're not really anywhere you can watch for free, unfortunately. But that's just how I'm rolling. I've rewatched yeah. a ton of movies lately. Do whatever you want, man. It's your show. And <laughs> I watched a lot of movies this past week. So the first one is, I'll, I'll recommend Altman's 1973 film, The Long Goodbye. Oh, yeah. Which uh, I think Kino Lorber put out on Blu-ray. Oh, I didn't know that. And you can rent it via Vudu or Prime or whatever. I think it's like three ninety-nine. That's definitely a classic movie. The next would be from 2006. Directed by William Friedkin, one of my favorite directors. A little movie called Bug. Okay, wow. Starring Ashley yeah. Judd and Michael Shannon. I have seen this. Uh, wouldn't have expected this to come up on the show. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've I considered entering it into the schedule. Ashley Judd <laughs> looks good in this movie. Yeah, I've always been a big Ashley Judd fan. This movie is fucking wild. It's the first <laughs> agree. collaboration between Friedkin and Lady Bird's dad, Tracy Letts, who is an actor but also writes plays. He also wrote the play Killer Joe. Oh, wow. Which Friedkin would yeah. make a few years after Bug. This one is available on DVD. I don't, Next recommendation, Killer Joe. It never really had like a Region A Blu-ray, uh, although I do think you can import at least one version that might play on players here, but you know, no one's going to do that. But it is available on Stars if you have that. That's where I watched it this past week. Oh, yeah. I have that. It's also it's where I watch Back to the on Future. Voodoo and Prime. And Brick. 2005, directed okay. by everyone's yes. favorite, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I actually really like Ryan Johnson. I do, too. We did our own in defense of The Last Jedi. It's just weird that he's just so associated with the Star Wars controversy stuff now. But, I mean, his he's non-Star Wars movies are all really good. And Brick is awesome. Yeah. And Kino just came out with a new Blu-ray, a new 4K scan of it that Ryan Johnson oversaw. And there's, like, new deleted scenes and commentaries and everything there's a lot of work went into it the so i definitely recommend the blu-ray but if you don't want to go that route i think you can stream it on Redbox's streaming thing oh, wow. for like 2.99 or 3.99 other places it's kind of a neo-noir told through the world of like high schoolers which yeah. is so weird but it stars joseph gordon levitt claire from lost is <laughs> oh the no girl. the baby yeah She's the ex-girlfriend that gets him involved. You know, the whole Charlie, story. Charlie, the baby. It's all very similar to other noir detective stories, yeah. but uh, it's done in the world of high school, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. It was Ryan Johnson's first movie, I wow. believe. Wow, yeah. It's, it's really good. I would recommend it highly. I know it was available on like somewhere streaming like a couple years ago, but now it's not. All that so stuff rotates in and out now. Yeah, so The Long Goodbye... Bug and Brick are my three. Okay. That'll do it for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yes. I know we're asking a lot of our listeners. We did a movie from oh, come on. 1946 and then a movie from 1950. Now we're doing a movie from 71 that no one knows, really. 70s movies are the best, though. That's true. We we like to mix in this stuff, though. You know, we're, yeah. we're obviously going to be jumping around with all different kinds of topics, but, you know, stick with us. We, we like to, a wide variety. Please, come on. <laughs> so thank you for listening, as always, and we will see you next time.
And the last thing I'll mention, because I have to mention it, is that I am good friends with a gentleman who randomly got asked to be in the Screen Actors Guild nominating committee. Mm -hmm. So he gets every screener of every movie that comes out. This year, he was one of very few people who got their hands on a copy of a little picture called I Love You, Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Written, directed by, and starring Mr. Louis C.K. How is the film? Folks, (laughs) I mean, just imagine you were in trouble for doing something pervy. Imagine the absolute worst possible thing (laughs) that could be coming out during that controversy. It was so, my skin was crawling every second of this thing. He's got Charlie Day's in it for like, Charlie Day plays a big role in it. I know Charlie. I love Charlie. I I don't know. I mean, at one point in this movie, Charlie sits and throughout the entire scene, it's Edie Falco yelling at Louis C.K. Throughout the entire scene, Charlie Day is behind her miming, jacking off. Uh-huh. For like two and a half minutes, mm-hmm. Charlie Day, in a frame with Louis C.K., mimes, jacking off while a woman is in the scene. And But he's not doing it to be like a mash in front of her. He's doing it to be like, ooh, like trying to make Louis laugh, yes, I would assume, but like, right? But like, it is still kind it, of weird. When you're watching it after yeah. these allegations, it blows the mind how, <laughs> how on the nose it is. Then there are... Th- Three to four scenes where Louis C.K. and then John Malkovich explain feminism to Chloe Grace Moretz. Oh, all right. And they make you sick. And and then at a certain point, you're like, does he know that this is fucked up? That these old white men are, are lecturing this young, beautiful woman on feminism? Or is he just writing it as if it's right? And you don't, I don't know. know he's a smart man. He probably yeah, knows. I don't know. There, then there are scenes in the film where, and, I, and I'll say there's five, six, seven, eight scenes in the film where women say to Louis C.K., look, men are perverts. It's okay. You don't have to apologize. Ooh. I understand. <laughs> men are perverts. Don't apologize to me. They're, I'm, oh, I'm not kidding Lord. when I say 10 different women tell him. Basically... Look, women love perverts. They're lying if they say they don't. And he also has 10 characters in the movie refer to him as a master. You're the best writer I've ever seen. Oh, my God. You're the best writer in the world. It's, to me, the most damaging thing Louis C.K. has put out. That's uh... other than his dick. (laughs) That's upsetting. In his entire career. And it I was, will say this. For I their... watched this at like a party last night. We And this room sat. like It's how people must have felt when they first saw the room back in the day. I mean, I was we were dying laughing at this thing because it's so fucking pretentious. And on the heels of this controversy, I mean, this this thing's going to blow your mind. If, if it ever gets released. It'll never get released. It I, uh, in fact, I think you could be jailed for watching it. <laughs> I felt like I wanted to go to jail after I watched uh... it. The, the movie sucks. Yeah, be on now. Be honest, honestly, because I mean the movie does sound not great. Yeah, be honest though. Put all the controversy shit out of your head. Is it in any way a redeeming film? No, no, it's no, just, no, no. It's no. just a whether or not any of this happened. You'd say it's well, a bad movie. Everybody in the movie is 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 worse than they'll ever be again. The actors are bad because they're given unplayable material. Wow. Because this this was a, a room of very funny people, comedy writers, and I I was laughing real hard the entire night there's a lot to chew on 
and it could get that kind of midnight movie crowd of asshole really? vibe. It, okay. was, it was that funny to watch. Yeah. Because it's a guy who just is completely unaware. Uh, that was that was my joke. I was like, they should have called this movie Exhibit A. <laughs> because it's like, you could just show the movie in any trial of Louis C.K. And he would go to jail. 